Okay, hello and welcome. Um, I've wanted to speak about the connection between music and justice for some time. And as I am a composer, it seemed most logical for me to speak about artistic patronage. Um, I've chosen the historical example of the Baroque composer Johann Sebastian Bach. But before we get to Bach, we need to briefly work our way through several ideas and the relationships to each other, namely art music, justice, patronage, and the common good. Let me start with the last term, the common good, and pose a question using an admittedly silly example to make my point. Um, when a Colgate executive writes a check to a composer for writing a jingle for Crest toothpaste, is this justice? Well, the simple answer is that yes, it is. It is the most basic form of justice, what we call commutative justice, justitia commutativa. I do something for you, you give me something equivalent in return, in this case, money. This simple act of exchange makes it a just act. And as far as it goes, there's nothing wrong with it. However, an important question, very relevant to my topic, is does this just exchange in any way contribute to the common good. And to continue along in a similarly facetious vein, I suppose it could be argued that it does. That is, to the extent to which the jingle encourages someone to purchase the toothpaste and then use it, which then gives him whiter teeth and fresher breath, and then helps him to find true love and a happy married life and then start a family. Yes, I suppose in that limited sense it does con contribute in some small way to the common good. Of course, those of us who went to music school and did what amounts to a 20-year apprenticeship as composers did not do it to sell toothpaste. Nor are we a form of matchmaker facilitating happy marriages, as important as that is. An interesting question would be, can a society which only or predominantly values commutative justice but does not have a strong sense of the common good produce great works of art? However, we first need to really dig into the notion of the common good and from there the notion of art music and then finally to the idea of patronage. To cite the compendium of the social doctrine of the Catholic Church, the common good is defined as quote, the sum total of social conditions which allow people either as groups or as individuals to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily, end quote. How good a definition this is is perhaps a matter of some debate. At least taken out of the context of both Catholic teaching and the natural moral law, it can seem a bit misleading. In today's secular parlance, talk of fulfillment, especially self-fulfillment, uh, often amounts to being selfish, sometimes even abandoning one's familial and social commitments, even doing immoral things in order to find personal happiness. One might say that self-fulfillment in the secular sense could be best understood as being full of oneself, uh, a truly delusional and hideous thing. But why is it hideous? Quite simply, it is hideous because real human happiness and fulfillment can only be found uh, first in following the moral law, but also in being true to and developing more fully one's own human nature. And the nature of man is, of course, objective, 
not something that changes from person to person or time to time or place to place. I would argue that many of modern man's problems stem from an inadequate understanding and even a diminution of himself as man. Or to quote Julia in Brideshead Revisited, speaking of Rex Matrum, he isn't a real person at all, he's just a few faculties of a man highly developed, the rest simply isn't there. An interesting question would be, can artistic patronage exist in a society dominated by Rex Matrums, that is, in a society of malformed human beings who are expert at pursuing political and economic power, but little else. I'm not necessarily, when I say this, indicting any particular economic system. I don't think it's that simple. Interestingly, examples can be found of both capitalists and commissars in the 20th century supporting the arts. From David Sarnoff's founding of the NBC Orchestra in 1937 under the baton of Arturo Toscanini to Khrushchev's championing of the Bolshoi Ballet. However, what leads, in my opinion, to the downfall of artistic patronage is the consistent following through of an inadequate view of man's nature, irregardless of economic system. Let us turn to Josef Pieper, 20th century German philosopher, for some enlightenment on this matter. Pieper writes that there are contributions to the common good which, though not immediately useful, are still indispensable and of very real value as well. Here Pieper seems to distinguish between the common need, which is more practical, food, shelter, clothing, and the common good, which is more comprehensive. He goes on further quoting St. Thomas to say that, quote, the perfection of the human community demands that there be men who dedicate themselves to contemplation. But is contemplation, this is not the quote, this is me, but is contemplation something that only monks and philosophers do? Again, citing St. Thomas, Pieper writes that, quote, the philosopher is related to the poet in that both are concerned with mirandum, with wonder, with marveling, and with that which makes us marvel. Poetry and philosophy are more closely related to one another than any of the sciences to philosophy by virtue of the power of transcending the everyday world. Now, to introduce one final connecting thread, Pieper is, of course, author of the famous book Leisure, the Basis of Culture. In it, he writes that leisure it is to be remembered, is not a Sunday afternoon idol, but the preserve of freedom, of education and culture, and of that undiminished humanity which views the whole of world, the world as a whole. As he goes on to say that leisure embraces everything which without being merely useful is an essential part of a full human existence. Finally, he makes the somewhat cryptic remark, which we will come back to later, that, quote, cut off from the worship of the divine, leisure becomes laziness and work inhuman, end quote. So leisure gives us the time and the freedom to be refreshed in the fullness of our humanity through contemplation and wonder. And this wonder can be as much a poetic, which would include all the arts, as a philosophical thing. 
But is this refreshment a simple, easy thing, like taking a warm, relaxing bath while we vegetate? Sounds kind of hippy-dippy. Um, we certainly understand that philosophical wonder is hard won at times. It involves study. But do we think of music or any of the other arts that way as well? Or do we th expect the reward music gives to always be immediate and full, requiring little effort on our part? Here is where we begin to get at an understanding of art music. In his informative but at times despairing book, Beauty a Very Short Introduction, the philosopher Roger Scruton writes that, quote, beauty is vanishing from our world because we live as though it did not matter. And we live that way because we have lost the habit of sacrifice and are striving always to avoid it. So we have a bit of an irony. Leisure, art, and beauty are not simply a break from the ordinary workaday world, but more importantly, a contextualization of it. In a sense, true leisure is the notion that the workaday world isn't what is really real. No, it is the world of contemplation and beauty that is more fully real, more attuned to our true human nature. Hence, leisure, precisely because it is not just the, take, the taking of break from labor, from toiling, certainly can and does involve a sort of work, some labor, indeed some sacrifice. So art music, unlike folk or popular music, does not have the same immediate appeal or satisfaction, generally speaking. At the very least, it has something of enduring value and thus does not exhaust itself as quickly. There is always something new to be discovered. Often art music is longer and does not consist of a simple predictable structure that is over within two or three minutes. Especially when we get to, say, the symphonies of Beethoven and Mahler that can last one or two hours we are engaging not only attention and critical skills, but also memory. For example, one of the greatest pleasures of listening to a Mahler symphony in the fullest sense listening is the last chord resounding, reassembling the entire experience from memory into a single gestalt and contemplating it as if it were a static object. This ability to turn music and art that takes place in time into a static art like painting is a listening skill that takes much training, practice, and indeed sacrifice. It is what is called structural listening, and it is the highest form of listening. Now, now this is not to say that art music cannot give great initial pleasure at times. It certainly can. Nor that music which does not, uh, or nor that music which does give immediate pleasure is bad. I'm not saying that there is certainly a place for the simple pleasures of popular music and folk music. Some art music involves long, overarching storylines and complex motivic developments, like that of Beethoven and Brahms. Other composers, Renaissance masters like William Byrd and Heinrich Isaac, wrote textural music involving intricate tracings and subtle polyphonic weavings. At any rate, despite differences, these compositions of high art are not simple pleasures that yield their secrets easily. They are not supposed to do so. 
They are only for those who are willing to make the commitment, the sacrifice of time and attention, after which much greater rewards are offered, of course. Now, as we are honing in on our main subject, Johann Sebastian Bach, let me say a little more about some of the things that constitute Western art music in particular, as these will be relevant to our understanding of Bach's music. I would posit four characteristics of Western art music, at least in its developed form that emerges in the second millennium, that distinguish it from other types of music outside of the West or uh, earlier forms of uh, Western music or folk or popular music. I would ask the indulgence of those who do not know too much about music. I'll try to make it as simple as possible, but the last two characteristics in particular may be a bit hard to convey, so please just bear with me as I try my best. Now, the first characteristic is that modern Western art music is very composer-oriented. So let me write that down. What do I mean by this? Doesn't all music have to be composed by someone? Well, yes, but not in the same way. If you take the art music of the Indian subcontinent or of the Orient, obviously you will find melodies that were composed at some point by someone. Often these melodies have been handed down for generations, though, and the actual composer is lost in the mists of time, at, at best a legend. But the inherited melody is just a skeletal outline of the piece, held in the memory, uh, which, is, uh, trans uh, which is handed down from generation to generation and is elaborated and embellished by the performers based on various traditions of performance and their individual skill. There is no composer who writes things out which tells each performer, you must play these notes and rhythms and dynamics at this point, while you over there must play these other notes and rhythms and dynamics, etc. It is left up to the performers, usually based on fairly well-established traditions and customs, but still it is up to them to work out the specifics of the actual presentation of the piece on their own. There is much room for performer-oriented control and group improvisation. The given, the composer's contribution, whoever that was generations, centuries ago, is quite minimal, very minimal. Now this brings us to another difference. In order for the composer in the West to have so much control over so many details, there has to be a very exacting notational system. Put very simply, modern Western musical notation is the most developed, detailed notational system on the face of the earth. So I'll put down second characteristic. Um, See, how did I put a high, you know, highly developed? Uh, notation. This brings now, now that we are at our third related characteristic that is a this is a bit hard to describe. Um, it's often identified by a German term, Augenmusik.
literally music of the eye. Um, I can only describe it as music whose organizational principle is more easily identified by being seen with the eye than heard with the ear, which seems ironic for music, doesn't it? Um, for example, let's take a musical theme. Um, you know, like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, da 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 da, something like that. Now, if that musical theme is repeated throughout a composition, people can hear it; they can recognize it, as, as with the Beethoven example I gave. But what if the composer were to turn the theme upside down, uh, what we call in, uh, inverted, when he repeated it? Yes, they do that. How many people would recognize it? What if the theme was played backwards, what's called retrograde? Yes, composers have done that. What if it was turned upside down and backwards, retrograde inversion? Yes, composers have done that. Similarly, what if the theme had every note stretched out 20 times its normal length and then placed at the bottom of the composition? Something that was very common in the 12th century. Would you easily recognize this theme by ear? No, probably not. Now, not all Western art music employs this technique, and frankly, it is only a minority of pieces, relatively speaking. But obviously, this technique would not be possible without a composer and without an elaborate notational system. Okay? Now, finally, the last characteristic of Western music is that it employs chords. I'll put chord progression. This is unique, unusual? Yes, it is. We are just so used to it that we take it for granted. Well, here's a melody. Well, what are the accompanying chords? We do not realize that the, no that the notion that a musical composition should have a chord progression accompanying it emerges and develops fully in the second millennium in Europe. Okay? So what is music like before this, whether in the West or in the East? Well, there are a variety of what we would call textures. Now, the, the, the first most common one would be that of simply melody, just melody alone, such as with Gregorian chant. This is what we call monophony. And that's a lot of folk music, monophony, one voice, just a melody. Now, there are variations on monophony. You could have melody, just the one melody with a percussion, some sort of drum accompaniment or some sort of a one-note sounded on any sort of instrument is what's called a drone accompaniment, or several drones, the bagpipes. Perfect example. Bagpipes are native to Scotland, but you'll find similar uh, instruments throughout the Mediterranean basin, where you know, some sort of animal bladder and pipes attached with drones. You'll find that in the Indian subcontinent, they play drones. There's an instrument that plays two-note drones, while the other sitar player improvises over that. So that's a kind of a variation. It's got an accompaniment, but it's really melody with a drone, one or two or three notes. Uh, and then there's simply doubling the melody at a different interval, like a fifth above or a fourth below or something like that, or thirds or other intervals. 
it's still a variation on monophony. Well, there's another texture that is common in ancient music, but rare today in the West, because it re uh, something else replaces it. Now, the, the original texture is, is called by musicologists heterophony. Now, it's a type, I don't want to complicate things too much, but it's a type of what you perhaps know a little bit better, the term polyphony. Polyphony meaning many voices. Heterophony is a type of polyphony. Let me see if I can explain it. I, unfortunately, I didn't bring any examples, but I'll, I'll, I'll just try the best to explain it. And it's kind of hard because we don't really have that in the West today. But heterophony is the simultaneous sounding of multiple forms of a melody. Now, you will hear this in what is called Gaelic psalm singing. And uh, if you're really curious, I'd recommend you go to YouTube because there are a number of examples of this. There's still Scottish Presbyterian congregations that sing this way. Um, now, uh, although this uh, would, ha would have developed at the time of the Reformation in Scotland, the musical approach is much older and must have been based on long-standing folk customs in Scotland. Basically, everyone sings their own version of the melody, their own version, at the same time, in their own tempo, with their own embellishments. Okay, So uh, it, it, it's got an interesting sound. Some might find it kind of awesome and ethereal. Others would find it kind of chaotic, because nothing is lined up, and everyone's kind of doing their own thing. That's a type of heterophony. The same melody sung or sung and played at the same time, but in different embellishments of it. We, we have very little like that today anymore. The closest thing that you, most people would be familiar with would be Dixieland jazz. Now that's, I won't go into it now, that's not technically heterophony, but it has the effect of it. Um, there's only one melody usually the trumpet is playing, but the other instruments play harmonic figurations and things don't line up neatly. It's got a kind of a chaotic, happiness to it, but it's kind of a chaotic sound, that might give you a little bit of an idea of a, at least a, a modern manifestation of something influenced by heterophony. Uh, and I have a little doubt that that was something that the black slaves who would have known heterophonic, tech, heterophonic techniques employed that in their interpretation of Western harmony. Anyway, but um, heterophony, the, the, usually in most cultures, they will sing, the person will sing a melody and they will accompany, either they will accompany themselves or someone else will accompany them and play the melody but in an embellished version at the same time. Anyway, uh, that was very common. It falls out of use in the West and it's an interesting story and I think I should be able to get through this. Um, at some point, in Western civilization, a kind of collective decision, and I'm saying that very metaphorically, it's not like there are committee meetings or anything, but for some reason, uh, a kind of a collective decision, a path is pursued, let's say, um, and which involves the very specific vertically, vertical lining up of each note of each melody in a polyphonic setting with the corresponding note of each other melody in a kind of a rhythmic grid into what is a system of consonant intervals with very carefully regulated dissonances. So if I could just graphically represent this, let's say here's a melody, here's a melody, here's a melody, here's a melody. 
what they do is, unlike heterophony, which tends to be improvisatory, and again it comes out of the performer-oriented tradition as opposed to a composer-oriented tradition, let's say these dots are notes, they make a point of lining them up rhythmically very carefully and according to certain specific harmonic intervals, thirds, fifths, sixths, things like that. Um, now the original Latin word for an individual note is punctus or point. So this system of point-to-point -point correspondence, which is called in Latin punctus contra punctum, gets shortened to contra punctum or counterpoint. So this truly novel and fascinating form of musical organization in Western art music <clears throat> is counterpoint, uh, which fairly completely displaces heterophony and is based on the holding intention of independent melodic lines which yet are bound together into a vertical harmony of note-to-note -note correspondence called chords. Okay, <clears throat> I should add that these chords also have a relationship of gravitational pull to each other, that is the chords progress. There's an awful lot to say about that and, and, and I, I, we couldn't cover all that in this time. Um, but anyway, um, I, I'll just conclude by saying I cannot stress enough the extent to which this approach to music of counterpoint out of which grows modern Western harmony. This is the foundation for over five centuries of the greatest master works of Western classical music from the Renaissance to the Romantics. Now, we are ready for Bach. Johann Sebastian Bach was born in 1685 in Eisenach a town in the region of Thuringia in central Germany. He came from a long line of musicians. Eisenach was the place where Martin Luther had hid in 1531 in the hill fortress of the, the Wartburg, and where he did his uh, famous translation of the Bible into German, the famous Luther Bible. So Bach was born into a region that had been thoroughly Lutheran for over 150 years. Bach was indeed himself a devout Lutheran, but as I shall argue, he represented the tail end of the classic Catholic tradition of artistic patronage of music as a part of the common good. Bach held a variety of positions, but I shall only focus on the very last position he held as cantor of Leipzig, uh, uh, city of Leipzig from 1723 to 1750. He had come from a very good position as court conductor for Prince Leopold of Kürten, who was himself a great patron of the arts. Bach had at his disposal a court orchestra of 17 skilled musicians, as well as a salary equivalent to the second highest court official, the court marshal. He wrote some of his greatest secular works, uh, the Brandenburg Concerti, the first volume of the Well-Tempered Clavier, and the Clavier Buchlein when he was there. It's not absolutely certain why he moved on. There are various plausible explanations. One, Prince Leopold was a reformed Protestant, not Lutheran. So Bach's only work for him was writing and conducting secular court music. Uh, Prince Leopold's new wife was uh, a Musa 
in, in, as Bach said in a letter, that is, she was not a lover of the arts. Uh, another explanation is that there were indications Leopold had to devote more of his budget to military operations. Uh, and then finally, the, the, the last uh, and very plausible explanation is his, Bach's first wife died very suddenly and unexpectedly at Curtin, and maybe he just wanted a change of scenery. Um, when Bach accepted the position at Leipzig, he was technically in charge of music for the four main churches but worked, uh, for the most part, in the choir school for boys, uh, St. Thomas. St. Thomas School was originally founded in Leipzig by the Augustinian order in 1212 AD as a scola pauperum, that is, for the benefit of the poor. It was taken over by the city in 1539 when the city went Protestant, and it still exists to this day. At any rate, the notion of a choir school for boys was not the exception then, as it is today. I think we have, we have only one resident choir school in the entire United States, uh, which is St. Thomas, uh, New York uh, City. Um, we have two Catholic choir schools, and one in Boston, one in Salt Lake City, uh, which are quite good, but they're not resident. Anyway, it was much more common in the past. It was much more the norm. For example, in 789 A.D., Charlemagne ordered that schoolboys learn, quote, psalms, notes, chants, the computus and grammar in each monastery and bishop's house. In fact, it would be arguable that whatever the exact nature of musical study in the medieval university system of liberal arts, many of these young men who entered into the study of musica speculativa at university would have had a thorough immersion in the study of musica pratica, uh, as boys. So in Leipzig, music remained an integral part of worship, at least for Lutheran Protestants, as the maintenance of choir schools and the patronage of liturgical music continued as an inheritance from the Catholic Middle Ages. Things had obviously changed in some ways quite dramatically, that, you know, theologically, but there was some interesting continuity as well education necessarily involved music. Music remained an integral part of worship, and worship was an integral part of the polis, that is, the city of Leipzig. Well, this brings us back to that curious statement of Joseph Pieper that cut off from the worship of the divine uh, that ledger degenerates. <clears throat> I personally would like to add that cut off from music, education can dry up. Not to oversimplify, but one of the Enlightenment attitudes toward music was that it was irrational and a distraction. Think of the famous Hogarth engraving, Masked Ball and Opera of 1723, in which literary, literary works are sold as waste paper and the academy is ignored while people flock to that irrational entertainment, the opera. Or think of Charles Burney's description of music as, quote, an innocent luxury unnecessary indeed to our existence, but a great improvement and gratification of the sense of hearing." End quote. This is a far cry from Bach's medieval view of music as soli deo gloria, and of Boethius's view of music as somehow underpinning the ordering of the universe, you know, the music of the spheres. If I may be permitted a somewhat profane analogy to the Enlightenment rationalist, Music becomes the equivalent of the boss's pretty secretary. Certainly a nice distraction to look at from time to time, but hardly someone with whom you would want to have a 
serious conversation. This conflict is symbolized in Bach's quarreling with the school's rector, Johann August Ernesti, who was hired about 10 years into Bach's tenure. Ernesti was 22 years Bach's junior and typical of the early generation of Enlightenment scholars. Ernesti later went on to the theology faculty at the University of Leipzig and is credited as one of the men who disengaged Lutheran theology, quote, from Lutheran orthodoxy along with any Lutheran scholastic or mystical influences and thus paved the way for a rationalist revolution in theology, end quote. According to James R. Gaines, author of the fascinating book Evening in the Palace of Reason, Ernesti moved the school away from one of its founding principles to guide students through the euphony of music to the contemplation of the divine, to medieval. And that, uh, could he have had his way, the curriculum of St. Thomas School would have dispensed with music entirely. Thank goodness that didn't happen. However, Ernesti was known to derisively say to students whom he would come upon practicing an instrument, he would say, what? So you want to be a beer hall fiddler too? Again, this was typical of a certain enlightenment view of music. Unlike the medieval view of music, medieval view of music, inherited from the Greeks as one of the seven liberal arts and enculturated into the Christian worldview via the liturgy, Music becomes simply a pleasant but non-rational distraction to serious men. Apparently, though the, the quarrel between Bach and Ernesti was not serious enough to prevent uh, Bach from remaining at St. Thomas until his death some 20 years later. I imagine they stayed in their respective corners eyeing each other warily, but the times were changing. Music, a part of the quadrivium of the liberal arts, and long considered a form of almost divine mathematics, as well as something that is an integral part of the worship of the divine majesty, this was passing. What was taking its place was an opposition between music as a pleasant but distracting form of entertainment and education as a kind of a dry intellectualism. Now, let us move ahead to another encounter which Bach had with the Enlightenment. Three years away from his death in 1747, Bach went to Potsdam to visit his oldest son, Carl Philip Emanuel, who was court keyboardist for King Frederick the Great. King Frederick was himself a trained flautist and a patron of the arts, and quite anxious to meet his employee's famous musician father. King Frederick was also a devotee of the Enlightenment and a correspondent with, uh, with Voltaire. In the course of showing the elder Bach his collection of pianofortes, then a relatively new instrument, Frederick sat down at one of them and pray, played a rather long chromatic theme. He asked Bach to improvise a three-voice fugue on it, which Bach did to the amazement of those assembled. He improvised it. Frederick then asked Bach to improvise a six-voice fugue upon the theme a rather presumptuous, if not downright unfair, request. This was beyond Bach, and he immediately admitted so, but offered and then played a six-voice fugue on another theme. James R. Gaines speculates that this may have been done deliberately to humiliate the old man and all that he stood for. We really don't know for sure, 
but it certainly does make for an interesting symbolization of the confrontation of the old medieval worldview and the new enlightenment view. To take up my previous analogy, it could be argued that what happened that evening in Potsdam was that the beautiful woman, music, was told that she really needn't worry her pretty little head about such serious matters because math, Pythagoras, Boethius, and the whole medieval tradition to the contrary, was really too hard for her. Of course, old man Bach was not going to admit defeat. After he returned home, he wrote down the three-voice fugue, which he had improvised, and composed the six-voice fugue that he couldn't improvise in Potsdam, both on that same royal theme. He also composed a trio sonata on the royal theme and multiple canons, which is the strictest form of counterpoint. The entire collection was called the Musical Offering. The canons were old-fashioned medieval puzzle canons. Well, a puzzle canon, just, just in brief, is one that is, it's not clear how it's supposed to be performed from the notation. Uh, given little other than a vague hint, you have to figure it out for yourself. For example, one of the canons has only one musical line. But at the end is a clef and a key signature upside down. So it turns out that this is a two-part retrograde, retrograde canon. One voice performs the musical line forward while the other does it backward at the same time, and it works. This is eye music, Augenmusik, with a vengeance. Bach's achievement in the musical offering was that he returned to the strict counterpoint, even for his day, of the Middle, of the middle Ages and Renaissance, but within the context of the then relatively modern harmonic system of the Baroque era. This newer harmonic system, which had an even more strong sense of forward motion, of progression, was harder to write counterpoint in than it had even been, say, for Palestrina during the Renaissance. Well, Bach finished the work, and he had a printed version of it sent off to the king within less than a month. Bach never received a thank you note or even an acknowledgement from the king. In fact, there is no evidence the king ever played the work or had it played for him. In fact, he referred to Bach's visit later in his life, but he never referred to that work, that special work that he was sent. Uh, he may have never seen it. Uh, it. It ended up in his sister's library. And yet this was one of the greatest works of Western civilization. So what are we to conclude? Bach was still working within the shell of the old patronage system, a system that was to die within the next 50 to 60 years, and working for men who increasingly didn't really believe in it anymore. Perhaps we conclude that genius is not enough. It also has to exist within a culture which is amenable to it. Clearly, genius can live off the interest of past cultural capital, as in the case of Bach, for a while, but at a certain point that cultural capital is spent, too. I don't want to overstate my case. Certainly there were great composers who lived after Bach, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, but as the patronage system disappears and Christendom with it, and this is the key, with the disappearance of Christendom's supreme genius that linked the Greek-inspired liberal arts and the Christian liturgy, with all of this failing, the modern world emerges. The position of music within the arts interestingly flip-flops. It goes from being the lowest of arts in the 18th century, because it is considered the least rational, to the highest of the arts in the 19th century, because it is considered the least rational. Music becomes the condition to which all the arts aspire, in the words of Walter Pater, of course. 
Um, music even makes its way back into the academy in the 20th century, uh, as the majority of composers these days teach at a university. However, these are no longer liberal arts institutions, let alone Christian institutions. And with the emergence of individualism, the fragmentation of culture, the growing distance between serious composers and their audiences, we are living in very different times. While it is not impossible, it is harder to argue for music as a part of the common good, not only because we have lost a common culture, but also because we have lost a sense, sense of the common good and with it an adequate view of man's nature. Bach truly lived at the end of an era. Thank you.